I took a little spill on the way over here this morning. We put these signs up, don't use the back deck. I use the back deck, so I'm glad that I'm facing this way and not the other way. The backside's a bit wet, but that's all right. If you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, picking up where we left off last week, and as you get there, um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, page 992 in the black hardback ones that are around you, and if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. It's yours. It's our gift to you. While you're getting there, the, the church, I mean, I could throw out a Sunday school answer, but instead I'll just give you the answer. The church has got a ton of metaphors uh, if you describe the church, you know, so um, it's a body. Right? So the church is a body, and so as a body, it's got lots of different members. And so some of us are eyes, some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are ears, all these different members that make up the body. It's the bride of Christ. And so uh, Christ died for the church, He loves the church. You can't love Jesus and not love His bride. So it's a bride, it's a body, it's a building, it's a temple, it's a flock. It's a people, and once we were not God's people, but now we have become God's people because of what Christ has done. And we all begin not as God's people. We are separated from God because He dwells in unapproachable light and holiness and perfection, and we don't. We are sinners, and so there's this chasm between us, but because of what Christ has done in His life and in His death and in His resurrection, he has made a way for us who are sinners to be made right with God, not because of us doing stuff, because we could never do enough to merit God's love and grace and forgiveness, but because of what He has done for us. He has made a way for us to be made right with Christ. And so now we are a people. He has adopted us into His family. He's made us a people but then also, and I just, I just said it there, just kind of gave it away, the body, the church, is a family. And we are a family, adopted into his family. And so we have brothers, and we have sisters, and we have aunts, and we have uncles. And we demonstrate to the world around us that we've been changed, not primarily because we memorize Bible verses or because we tie the portion of our income or because we pray before our meals, but because we increasingly show a willingness to put up with and forgive one another and live as a family. That's how we show Christ to the world. We live like a family. That's what we are. And so the church is not a corporation. It is not a company. We are a family. Therefore, we have to act like a family, and we are to function like a family, and we are to treat one another as family. The church is not just like a family. It is family. Blood's thicker than water, but the Spirit's thicker than blood. And so that's what this text is all about family of God. How are we to treat the family of God? And so let's just jump into it and learn from God's word this morning. How we are to treat the family of God. Number one, if you're taking notes, we'll, we'll just before we get to the Bible, if you're going to take notes, treat everyone with respect. That's going to be the pervading kind of thesis that we're going to see at the beginning. 
All right, so number one in your name, treat everyone with respect. This is the overriding principle of verses one and two. We're to treat fellow family members with the utmost respect. That's going to work itself out in a few different ways, depending upon age and depending upon gender. But this is the pervading idea across all people in all situations as a family. So look at verse 1 and verse 2 with me. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so again, the overriding principle here is of respect, particularly as it relates to those who are older than you. Okay, we are to treat older men and older women as fathers and as mothers. Okay, and so the fifth commandment is to honor your fathers and your mothers. You are to respect them. And so the idea of showing respect to your elders, and I'm not using that in the sense of the biblical office of elder, but just those who are older than you, that's not just a cultural uh, conviction. It is a biblical principle to respect your elders. Now, the outworking of that may be a bit cultural. The principle's not, but the outworking may be. So like in Asia, to show respect, what they do is um, younger people will bow before older people. All right? Now, I'm not expecting any younger people to come bow you know, before me, or I'm not going to bow before Fred. Love you, Fred, but I'm not going to do it. <clears throat> but so there's a cultural thing. But in our culture, younger people should use proper titles. Mr. Irwin. Who am I going to? Mrs. Crow. We should use these proper titles for those who are, and I'm not saying you're older than me, but just you should be like, I'll go back to Fred. Mr. Shanks. <laughs> and Mrs. Shanks. So it's a politeness is not just like something that we do. It's actually a Christian virtue, and it's one that needs to be kind of rediscovered in the 21st century. Adults are not dudes. Kids, you're not dudes. It's a mister, it's a missus. And so we're to revere, we're to respect those older than us. And then particularly as we get into this, verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, this does not mean that older men can then just do as they please because they have a young pastor or young folks around them, and so you can't speak into their lives. Pastor Timothy here absolutely had to correct seniors at times. I mean, Paul wrote to him, chapter 1, verse 3, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so it's highly likely that some of the people who were teaching false doctrine were older than him, and so he had to confront them with that. But even when a rebuke is called for, a younger person is not to give an older person a tongue lashing. Instead of a reprimand, it should be a reminder. Instead of like a harsh rebuke, it should be an exhortation. It should be an encouragement. Don't go that way. Don't do that thing. Don't believe that way. Don't act that way. I like the way that the Living Bible paraphrases this verse. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. But I like the way they do it. Never speak sharply to an older man, but plead with him respectfully, just as though he were your own father. And so the idea here is just think about your own dad. If you had to 
rebuke your father because of a sin that is, he's in, you know it, you see it. That natural trepidation and humility you would have walking into that situation, that's the sense here. When you start thinking about it, that's kind of where you're getting to if you had to speak into an older person's life. That's how you approach an older man, even in his sin. And so treat older men like fathers. Secondly, treat younger men like brothers. All right, And it is up to the older men to enter into a younger man's world. And so, for example, when you talk to a toddler, how do you do that? Well, you, you get down on their, on their level, right? You, you get eye level with them. Well, metaphorically, that's what you do with someone younger than you. You enter into where they're at. So you, instead of just like bemoaning, oh, the millennials of this day, blah, 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 blah. They're so entitled. Well, if they are, who taught them that? But then, like, just enter in. Get to know what they enjoy. Get to know what they like and treat them as a brother. And as you do that, you'll begin to see how amazing they actually are. Our, our young boys and our young girls. They give me great hope for the future. Amazing folks. Get to know them. But young men, even as older men maybe come in and they are treating you as a brother, that doesn't mean you treat them as a brother. Again, they're not a dude, they're a mister. You respect them. This is part of growing to be a Christian gentleman. All right? We're also to treat older women like mothers. So again, reverence and respect. And so the more seasoned ladies in our congregation, see how I phrase that? <laughs> the more seasoned ladies in this congregation are to be loved and listened to. You should have lots of mamas in this church. Lots of mothers in this church. And you protect them and you care for them and you love them and you spend time with them. Romans 16, 13, Paul is writing about uh, he's giving a, you know, he's saying goodbye in, in the end of his letter to the church at Rome, and he's giving this long list of, of specific, you know, people he's saying goodbye to. And he says, Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. We should have lots of mamas in here. And then fourth specific that's given here, Paul gives, is that we are to treat younger women like sisters in all purity. And so think of a sister, particularly men. I want to talk to you for a minute because of this call here of in all purity. Think about how you are to love a sister. There's a, a tender, jovial affection and a fondness towards a sister, and there's no sexual overtones. And that's how you are to love a younger woman, as a sister. You're to care for her. You're to be friends. That's a good thing. Like in our desire to be godly and, and not fall for, you know, into temptation or into sexual sin, the church has set up, and Christians have set up rightly so, boundaries uh, beyond, you know, um, as it pertains to male-female, you know, uh, relationships. So like, I mean, I've got boundaries. I will not go to, the only, the only people I would, the only women I would um, be alone with would be my wife, my daughters, and my mom, and some of you who are old enough to be my mom. 
I would come see you in the hospital or at your house. I would be okay with that. Other than that, no. All right? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have time for you. That doesn't mean I don't want to spend time. It just means you come to the office, the door is going to stay open. Things like that. All right? So those are good. Those are proper. Those are good boundaries that you should have. I think that's great. But in an effort to set those boundaries up, I think perhaps the church has gone too far in some ways. Because I think in some churches, you've almost overreacted and we've almost set up a culture where to talk to another woman is a sin. That's ridiculous. Brothers talk to their sisters. That's what families do. They, they talk to one another. That's what a family does. And so don't be foolish. But just because a guy's having a conversation with a girl does not mean he's automatically headed for an affair. She's your sister. You should love and you should care for your sister. And you start sharing deep emotional stuff with one another in private, you are either an idiot or you're trolling for something. And if you're a man, 99% of the time, you're trolling for something. And that's wicked and that's evil. She is your sister, not an object. And matter of fact, in that sister metaphor for two Christians to engage in adultery is tantamount to incest. So love your sister as a sister in all purity and protect her. She's your sister. I've, I've heard stories uh, of high school um, youth groups and college groups where they've really gotten like a hold of this concept and this idea of she's my sister and I'm to protect my sister. And so when some guy comes into the church looking for, uh, you know, maybe I can find a girl here or maybe he's already after a girl and so he starts coming to church to, you know, get to know her more and play the game and look like he's this good godly man or whatever. Well, some of the guys in these groups will pull this guy aside and say, listen, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what your intentions are here. Maybe they're great. But if they're not, listen, she's my sister. And so if you mess with her, you're messing with me. And you're messing with all my brothers. High school guys, college guys, that would be awesome. I would gladly applaud you for Decking some punk who's after one of our young ladies. But this is how we treat one another. We're a family. Families protect. Families love. Families care for one another. They're there. And we treat one another with respect. Even when we disagree, respect pervades. And so number one, treat, treat everyone with respect. Number two, treat widows with honor. Treat widows with honor and the whole rest of this passage deals with widows. And so as I began studying this and I mean, was just thinking through, you know, as I'm reading verses 1 through 2, and I'm like, okay, this is how we're to treat the family of God. I was just kind of surprised at first that they spent two verses talking about all of these relationships, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, two verses, and then 14 verses on widows. And so at first I was kind of perplexed by that, and I was thinking, why is that? Well, one, verses 9 through 16, which we are going to be super fast with, there are some specifics that are going on in the church at Ephesus as it relates to almost kind of an order of widows that, that is set up there. That's not a, those verses are not a list of qualifications 
for widows to be served by the church, but for widows who are serving in the church. But more than that, I think it's because God has a special place in his heart for single women and particularly for widows. I mean, as you look through the scriptures, it is ripe with verses about how God is the protector of widows. He's the father of the fatherless. Just full of texts and, and scriptures like that. And he values people without a husband, values people without parents, values people without a home. Those are sojourners. And that we are to have a special place of honor and care and concern for them in the church. The church gathered and the church scattered, like just individual members of the body, individual members of the family. And so all throughout the Bible, you see calls for justice and love demanded for all of these things. We just read Deuteronomy 10. I could literally give you dozens and dozens and dozens of other scriptures that call out that God's a protector of widows. And true religion is to care for widows and orphans and sojourners. But even beyond all these specifics I could just give you, you see it in stories like Ruth and Naomi. You see it, uh, oil for a widow in the times of Elisha. Jesus brings back the life of the son of the widow Nain. Jesus commends the persistent prayer of a widow. He commends the generosity of a widow. And then he rebukes religious rulers for devouring widows' houses and not taking care of their parents. This Corbin thing where they're like, they get an inheritance, and they're like, oh, this is for the Lord. And their parents are over here just like have nothing, and they're not caring for them. And he calls them out on that and rebukes them. And then even on the cross, his mom Mary, what does he do? He takes care of her, makes sure that John is now going to provide for her. This is the heartbeat of God. He has a special love and concern and care for widows. And so the church is too as well. And so that's the charge that's given here. Honor them. And first of all, honor, just care. Care for it. And really the principle of caring there extends beyond just widows to every family member of God's household who needs special care. So elderly, widows, the sick, those with special needs, single moms. And so first of all, there's this call to care. Right? But along with that, there's also the call for financial support. All right? It's both of these. And so, subpoint A on number two. I mean, I could have a gazillion subpoints this week. It's crazy. It'd be like A1, A1, A. That's how far it's going to break down. But subpoint A on that ensure that widows are served, like in these ways care and financial support. All right? It's the church's responsibility to ensure that they are served in these ways, though it's not necessarily the church's responsibility to provide that support. There seems to be a responsibility that falls on the natural family, verses 4 and 8. And then there seems to be a responsibility that does fall on the spiritual family for this care and financial support, verses 5 through 7. And so let's just read it, and then we'll kind of break it down along those lines. Look at verse, we'll just start with verse 3. Honor, widow, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children, 
or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Commend these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we must ensure that widows are served. And again, there appears to be a responsibility for the natural family and a responsibility for the spiritual family. And so let's just kind of talk about that. All right, let's do the responsibility of the natural family first. All right, natural family first. This is verses 4 and 8 in particular. And first of all, we see that there's, there's this, uh, seems to be a kind of support that children, and we're, we're to support our parents that we, like we owe that to them. There seems to be a kind of support that is something that children owe to their parents because verse 4 says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. And so here's an inevitable fact. These small girls of mine that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, that, I, that Sarah and I once held in our arms and provided every single thing for, through the course of time, will eventually become the ones who are holding me and her in their arms and caring for us. That's how the world goes through time, the rhythms of generations. Our parents poured so much into us. If you've never thanked your parents, those younger folks, if you've never thanked your parents, or my age, never thanked your parents for all that they have poured into you, do so. Thank them. They have sacrificed so much for you. And they've poured so much into us, and any neglect or abandonment and lack of care or provision would naturally have led to our death. We would not be alive. And on top of that, children are crazy expensive. Crazy expensive. Like I've seen, I looked at numbers. Somewhere between 100, but really more like $250,000 for the first 18 years per child. And we're all four big families here, but wow. Crazy expensive. And so now... These children grown, now verse 4 calls them to make some return to their parents. And so let me just be super practical here. It is important for you to plan for the future financially. Unless you absolutely can't. It is hugely important that you do that. All right, Set up retirement. If you are in a profit organization, invest in their 401k. As much as they will match, bare minimum. Do that. If you are in a nonprofit, it's a 403B or an IRA, uh, all of us can jump in those. It is important for that, or a pension plan, or whatever it may be in your job. It is important to set that up. You need to plan for your future financially. You need to also set up good insurance policies. 
covering the funeral, covering life, just, you know, the life insurance so that you can cover at least a funeral or anything else. Long-term disability care. Uh, Sarah's dad has just been a rock star at this lately, which kind of worries me because I've been getting all these things. But, I mean, he's already taken care of, uh, he's paid for uh, the cemetery, he's paid for funeral costs, he's paid for um, casket, he's paid for three years worth of nursing home care. He's like, all this is already done. What a blessing that is for us, and we don't have to think through that and provide for that. It's, it's amazing. Like I said, it kind of worried me. Why are you giving us all this right now? But amazing. That is a gift. So if you can, bless your family in that way. In the process of grieving, it is so hard to then have to turn around and try to figure out how you're going to pay for a $15,000 funeral. Set that up if you can. Have a will. Don't let that go to probate. Have a will. Have a living will for what happens near the end of life. Set these things up. That'll be a blessing to your children. But children, even if, that's, uh, even if they don't set those things up and, and they don't have financially a, a secure future, and it is your responsibility to do what you can. It is your responsibility to do what you can. That isn't, I mean, that, and that's what it, it is, what, uh, just, what you can. It may, you may not be able to do as much as you want, or you may, but do what you can. This is our responsibility from God's Word. This is what we're to do. But even if the financial portion is unneeded, like they took care of that, there's still a Christian obligation for hands-on loving care as our parents age. And listen, there's a place for professional caregivers, assisted living, nursing homes, hospice. There's a place for that. Absolutely. But it's also the responsibility of the children to make sure that their parents are receiving the best care that they can. And whenever possible, doing that themselves in their own homes. Now, I recognize that's not always possible. It's not. There's a gazillion reasons it might not be possible, truly. Just a gazillion. From it would be toxic for my family, my immediate family with my kids. It'd be bad to, it'd be better for them to be in a sibling's home to, a gaz, I mean, seriously, a gazillion reasons that might not be possible. And so I get that. There are reasons for that. And so, folks, that's okay. Don't live under the guilt of that. I do not want people walking out of here under the guilt of that. But I also do want to rattle your world a little bit if you have invented reasons that you can't care for your aging parents in your home when actually you can. It's just that it would alter your lifestyle and interrupt your world. That's problematic. Because, friends, it's not just about what we owe our parents here in verse 4, making a re some return to their parents, but it's the next thing after that. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is pleasing in the sight of God. So it's not only that we owe our parents this, it's that we owe our Lord this. 
And that's the positive sense of this. Verse 4 is the positive side of this. This is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 8 is the negative statement on this. So look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And again, this has financial overtones, certainly. But it also has just care overtones, certainly. Emotional neglect and abandonment is not an option. For such conduct is worse than an unbeliever. And again, this isn't saying no nursing home. This isn't saying no assisted living. It is saying care, love, spend time. Provide for the well-being of your family members financially and emotionally and spiritually. As a natural family, you have a responsibility to ensure that, you're, that again, your, your aging parents and grandparents are served. But then specifically for widows where the natural family is not around, well, then it's the church's responsibility. It's the spiritual family's responsibility. Look at verse 5. She who is truly a widow, well, what's that? Next line, left all alone. So has no family, has no one to support, has no help has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's our concern. And he gives some more. We'll just go ahead and read it because I'll come back to it. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. And so in our life, in our world, in our modern American, you know, where we're at right now, this context that we live in, there are avenues of provision made possible by the government. And so certainly you should take advantage of those as long as you've paid in, you've paid your taxes, and you are being a good citizen and following through those things. That's great, wonderful, great. Okay? Yes, avail yourself of those things. But where the government does not provide all that a person needs to make their basic necessities of life, then the next line of support is the church. We are a family. We care for one another. We provide for one another. And so some of that might be just straight up help with money, like even someday needing a budgeted line item for a widow or a widower in our church. And then we would do that. We would make that happen. But it might not be that. It may be just a collection of individuals coming together unbeknownst to the rest of the body, and this happens all the time. I find out about it, but most people don't. People gathering around folks to help them through a difficult time. Maybe it's an ongoing thing or maybe it's a short-term basis. But besides that, maybe it's helping with shopping. Going to the grocery store with someone. Giving them a ride. Practically paying their bills. Like writing the checks or, or setting them up on auto-deduct. Maybe it's just being a friend. This is our job towards one another in the church, but especially towards widows and single mothers. And I say single mothers because that is a category of women that was virtually unknown in the first century. Uh, you know, first, like, like Christian women who had been abandoned, Christian women and their children who had been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. In that sense, godly Christian single mothers are 
a new kind of widow. And the church is to stand with them and to walk with them and to support them financially if need be, but also emotionally and spiritually and physically just helping with things. So community groups, I'd encourage you, if you have a single mom in your group, or even if you don't, think about maybe ways, or if, if, the, if she's in, her group, in your group, maybe at some point pull her, pull her aside and just talk to her about how could we bless you and help you? Could, could we help shuttle kids? Could we help maybe watch the kids one night so you can like have a night off? Or actually go to the grocery store by yourself? Things that a lot of us don't even think about. And we won't think about unless we enter into their world. So enter into their world. And then single moms, don't be scared to talk and open up about these things and, and receive help. Don't be, don't be prideful. It's not, it's not being um, needy. It's just us being a family. It's just us being a family. But getting back to widows specifically here in verse 5, who exactly are the widows that the church is to care for? Is it just anybody in the community? One well, the one sense of like aiding and helping people, sure. We have food pantry, different things, maybe. You know, the deacons take benevolence requests. But specifically the widows that the church is called to care for, whether that's financially or emotionally, they, they are those who are, one, truly a widow, all right, left all alone, and is they have no family support, and then two, they're members of the church in good standing. And is that they have their hope on God and the church, and they are praying, and they're not seeking to be self-indulgent. They're seeking to live a godly lifestyle, members of the church in good standing. And so just very practically here, we keep, the elders of your church keep a list of widows, and we pray for them every single time we gather, which is twice a month. Not just when their names come up, uh, as we're praying through five letters, last name, every single time that we get together. We pray for our widows every single time that we gather. But I've been convicted by this passage this week. So at our elders meeting on Wednesday night, I was telling the guys, I was like, I think... I think there's something more here that we could do for our widows. And I don't know what that is. I know it would definitely involve the deacons because the deacons are the ones who are con, con, uh, caring for the widows in Acts chapter 6. That's what you see. But I don't know what that is. And so we're in a dialogue about that, trying to see what... I don't know. It's just something there, something on my heart, and I don't know what it is yet. But... It's not ultimately just the elders and the deacons who are to care for widows. It's all of us. We're a family. It's every single one of us. And so community groups, again, are just families. How can you better serve some of the widows or even widowers or single moms? How, how can you do that? Think about these things. Talk about these things. Dialogue about these things. A church member should never eat a Thanksgiving meal by themselves. Shouldn't happen. So make sure that, let's do this. Let's put our widows in such an awkward position because they have to turn down so many people. And not just for Thanksgiving, but just throughout the year. Thursday night dinner, having people over. This pleases God. And they are members of 
his household. And so for us not to provide for them is for us then to be worse than an unbeliever. And so church, let's ensure that widows are served. But then super quickly, let's also ensure that widows can serve. All right, not just that they are served, but that they can serve. Like this whole next section, verses 9 through 16, that I'm not going to reread for time's sake. Again, it's not a list of further qualifications for widows to meet in order to be cared for by the church. If that's what it was, no one would be cared for by the church, basically. These are like, I mean, just like, you know, they've gone pro, right? They're not JV. This list, these are pros here. And so it's not that. Rather, it seems to be a list of qualifications for widows in the church of Ephesus who were serving in some capacity in that church. It's not something we find else in, anywhere else in Scripture, so it's not like a, some sort of new office in, um, you know, in the church. But it's just like a practical outworking of something they're doing in their church, not dissimilar to the qualifications we have in our church for Bible study teachers and community group leaders. And so these are their qualifications for the widows who are serving in their church. But part of this list is taking a vow of celibacy. And they're not to be married. And so that's why younger widows are barred from being a part of it. And so instead, Paul says, verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. It's very practical. Get married, have babies. It's great. But even beyond the specifics of what's going on here in the church at Ephesus, there's a side note and there's a principle I want to call out for us. All right? Here's the side note. Look at verse 9 real quick. We will do this part. Let a widow be enrolled. If she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and then has several other things. This idea of enrolled. They've got a list. So we know they at least have a list of some of their members. So anyone who's like, I don't know about membership, I don't know about being on a roll, they have a list. They know who's part of the church and who isn't part of the church, 1 Corinthians 5. They know who's in, they know who's out. It's clearly delineated. That's why we have roles. It's not so we can be like, oh, church roll, blah, 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 blah. It's so we know as pastors who we're to care for and who and who were to love, but don't have charge over their souls, won't give an account before God for. And who we as a church, what widows are we to care for? We're the ones who are members in good standing. And so that's the side note. They had a role, they had a list. But, but, but the principle I want to pull out here is just, again, it's not just that widows need to be served by the church, but they need to have a place to serve, and we need to be served by them. Widows, you have gifts uniquely wired into you by God for His glory and the good of your church family. And He wants to use you. And we need you. You have things that you can do that no one else in here can do. And so serve the people in these chairs and the people on the directory that we're praying for. Today's day 22, so we're praying for the V's, but we don't have any V's, so just pray for widows then. Because we should be doing that every day. But serve 
this family with your gifts, whatever they are. And specifically, one of the ways we see widow serving here, verse 5, they set their hope on God and they continue in supplications and prayers night and day. The reformer John Calvin, commenting on this verse, said, Prayer by day and night is the special privilege of widows, for they are free from the things that very properly hinder those who rule a family from doing the same. And so, folks, the prayers of widows give strength to the church. Look through the scriptures and see God's concern and care. Protect your widows. Widows, it is your prayers, very specifically. Like a result of your intercession, the young mothers with their toddlers... Pastors at their studies, missionaries in the field, men and women at work are given spiritual help because of your prayers. Pray for one another. Love one another. We are a family. And so let's care for one another like a family should. Let's treat one another with respect regardless of situation or age or gender. Treat one another with respect. And let's, as a church, do a better job of honoring our widows and single mothers among us for the glory of God and the good of the church family. Let's pray. We praise you for your goodness towards us. You have adopted us. We were once not your people, but you have made us your people. And you have adopted us and in some crazy way that is beyond our ability to comprehend, you exult over us. You sing over us, the minor prophets tell us. Even in the midst of our folly, even in the midst of our foolishness, the midst of our continued sin, the midst of our running away after other things and substituting things for, for you, you love us, and you never stop. You don't forsake us. Father, help us to love one another like that. And we don't stop when things get hard. We don't stop when we get crossways with someone. The answer is not to run off. We don't, we, don't, we don't kick people out of our family. We love them. We do not want to see them go. So help us to love one another as a family. As you have loved us, help us to love one another. As you have been forgiving towards us, help us to be forgiving towards one another. As you have served us, help us to serve one another. As you have given to us, help us to give to one another. As you have cared for us, help us to care for one another. As you have been selfless towards us, help us to be selfless towards one another. Not so selfish, not so self-centered, not so caught up with the goings-ons of our lives that we're not concerned about the goings-ons of others. Bind our hearts to you and to your bride, the church. 
Now, Father, you are good. And you are gracious. You are kind and merciful, even as you are all-powerful and omniscient and omnipotent in unapproachable glory. How can it be that you would love us like you do? We bless your name, in Christ's name.